Let's read from James uh, chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, let me remind you what we're doing. We're going through James o- over the summer months, and uh, we hope to complete the book next week uh, as we get ready for our, uh, I suppose, our autumn series back into John's Gospel, John chapter 5. So you can start reading at that, prepare for that. That's in September. Um, but now we today are going to look at verse 8 through to verse 12. Well, we'll read uh, from verse 1. This is the context. You looked at these first six verses last week, now 7 to 12 today. This is the Word of God. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you feel to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield his valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in, facing, in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. And we end our reading there. We thank God for it. If you've been with us over these last number of months, you, you will know that James is making a very strong case for being single-minded in our faith rather than being double-minded. It's easy to be double-minded, uh, claiming one thing, saying one thing, but doing what we want or, or doing as the world does it. James makes it very, very clear that while the Christian life is, uh, can be hard, it is not impossible when we're filled with His grace and obey His Word. But sometimes we're tempted to wonder, is it worth it? I mean, is it worth it to live out the gospel? Wouldn't it just be easier to um, give it all up, pack it all in? Or maybe just kind of play at religion, you know, weekend, hobby, or pick and choose what suits us, leave the hard bits 
accept the easy bits and hope in the end that if there is a heaven, we're going to get there. That would be easy, wouldn't it? See, we have this idealistic view of what life should be, what life could be, the kind of life we would want. But the reality of life can be very different and can shock us and disappoint us. And sometimes we cry out loud or, or sometimes maybe we just whisper in our minds, God, what is going on? I mean, what are you doing? How can I keep at this when so many, so many hard things happen? Of course, another approach that some people take is to kind of reduce God to being a genie in a, a lamp or reduce faith to a sparkling magic wand. And so you call the genie or you wave the magic wand and you name it and you claim it and all the problems go in a puff of smoke. This is very popular. It's dangerous and it's naive heresy. Now last week at verses one to six, you looked at James when he was in scathing form. He attacks the powerfully rich who cause misery for God's people, those who abuse their power and their position to hoard away or to waste their money and the resources in self-indulgent lifestyles. The abuse of God's people by the misuse of power and position and pounds is all around us. And of course, as we learned last week, such attitudes can slip into God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, the misuse of power and positions and pounds. Very easily. We can be double-minded in the way we treat these things. So last week we looked at the oppressors, verses 1 to 6. Today we're thinking more of the oppressed, the victims. And again, many of you can probably put your hand up and say, yeah, I can understand what it is to be a victim because the vast majority of us, if not all of us, have experienced pain and hurt as a result of other people and their actions. And, and the longer you live, there are more opportunities for broken relationships to occur. And, and maybe you've had to live with somebody who's been addicted, or, or maybe you have deep concern over your children or grandchildren, or there's the pressure of finance in these days, or work is not easy, and you don't know what to do, and you cry, God, where are you? And what are you doing, God? What are you doing? Where are you? And what are you doing? Now, as one commentator says, James doesn't ask those questions explicitly, but he answers them. He doesn't ask them explicitly, but he answers them. And guess what? There's no magic wand. There's no genie in the lamp. There's no easy and cheap answers. James basically is saying this in this passage before us. In the midst of the suffering and injustice and the pain and the loss and even the mistreatment that we noted last week in verses 1 to 6, what are we supposed to do? We are to wait for Jesus to make it right. We're to wait for Jesus to make it right. Let him defend you, he says. Let him vindicate you. He is coming and as you wait for him to come, well, do these things that we're going to look at today. Now, I think the overriding focus of these verses is the second coming of Christ and our response to the second coming of Christ. 
For instance, verse 3, you'll notice there, the last days. Verse 7, until the Lord comes. Verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. Verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. So we have the sure and certain promises to encourage us and to strengthen us as we face the problems of life. Because what God is saying to us through his word is this. Every person is going to be judged. Every issue is going to be answered. And every wrong is going to be put right. So our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in the legal process or in man's intervention. Our hope is in the return, the rule, and the reign of King Jesus. And any other kind of answer that you might be offered is a false one. It will not work, and it cannot work. In the light of his return, says James, don't be a victim. Be a student. He says, grow up. Mature deeply, become and be a real, true Christian. So what James is doing in this little passage that we're looking at today is picking up some of the, the key themes of the book and kind of giving them a slightly different twist. But as he does this, you know, he's again beating the same drum. Be single-minded. Don't be double-minded. He's teaching us how to be a Christian in the light of Christ's return. He's telling us how to be a believer in the midst of the mistreatment that come from the oppressors that were revealed in verses 1 to 6. So what are these things we're supposed to do? Well, first of all, be patient. And remember, he will defend you. Verse 7 uh, and into 8. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You, too, be patient. So, the Lord is the one who will defend us and protect us from the oppressors revealed in verses 1 to 6, the oppressors that are around us in the world. But you'll notice there in verse, uh, verse 7, twice, verse 8, verse 10, the word patient is mentioned. It means being long-tempered rather than being short-tempered. It means showing self-restraint, which doesn't hastily retaliate against some or any kind of wrong. Now, I think the idea is that you could take revenge, but you utterly refuse to do so. Why? Because the Lord will sort it out. We don't need to. So the doctrine of the return of Jesus changes everything. It changes our view of sin and holiness. It changes our view of suffering and mistreatment. It changes our view of power and money. And so James says, you know, be calm, be restful, and be patient. And, and then he uses this, this picture of the patience of the farmer waiting for the harvest. And James uses the idea of the early and late rains, which was kind of unique to the climate of Palestine. The early rains would have come in um, October time, at the time of the sowing of the seed. And it helped the planted seed to begin the process of German, germination. And then, of course, once that was over, there was the long wait over winter. The late rains 
came in the springtime, March and April. And, and these rains and kind of swole or swelled, swelled, helped swell the grain, to get the grammar right, helped swell the grain to, to produce a good, good harvest. The point that James is saying is, you can't hurry the process. You can't hurry the process of the early and late rains. I mean, you could, the farmer could go out and, and yell at the, at the sky for the rain to, to fall, or he, he could go into the, the fields and shout, you know, sprout, you seed, sprout. But that wasn't going to do any good. The farmer understands that God has made the laws of nature, and you can't hurry the plan of God. And James says, take a lesson in the growth that the farmer experiences. We grow in the same way. In the midst of suffering and mistreatment and justice, we could yell and complain and shout. But James says, wait. Wait for the Lord to make things right. Be patient. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient. Haven't we been learning that lesson with Joseph these uh, Sunday nights? Joseph waited and waited and waited. And God delivered him in the end. Now imagine if Joseph had um, taken any of the situations that he found himself in into, into his own hands. It, it, he could have damaged the whole plan of God, the plan that God had set out. If any of us, in a sense, you jump in impatiently to sort things out, then we can cause great damage. Wait on the Lord. Let him be our defender. He's coming. As certain as the harvest is coming, he's coming. Be patient. Rest in his control and his plan. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Be patient. Secondly, stand firm. Look to the future with hope. This idea of standing firm here, you'll see that uh, verse 8, it's just two words, you two be patient and stand firm again because the Lord's coming is near. The idea is determination, steely resolution, persistence. Again, think of Joseph. Again, we're going to see that tonight, how he could come to a point where he might forgive his brothers, the gross mistreatment, the false accusations, the undeserved punishment, and he exemplified a man standing firm, being willing to grant forgiveness and being free from an urge to seek revenge, a man with positive attitude. And eventually, of course, he'll be able to say, as we get to chapter 50, you meant it for evil, brothers. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. So this truth, in a sense, enables us to stand firm. No matter what's going on around us, it brings us hope. C.S. Lewis writes this, hope is one of the theological virtues. 
This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people like to think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, that is the world to come, that they have become so ineffective in this. And then he comes out of this last statement. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. So, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't fall, don't move. But I wonder how many people in church this morning are saying, the Lord's coming is near? I mean, we're 2,000 years away from being near. How can it be near? Well, again, second C.S. Lewis, there'll be no more. This is the the final C.S. Lewis um, illustration. I think he, he can gives us a help with this, and, and maybe you haven't even noted it as you watched the likes of the Chronics of Narnia. The difference between earth years and the timeless sphere of God's activity. Do you know what the children do? They walk through the, uh, the wardrobe and they engage in Narnia adventures that last, in some cases, months, other times Years. And then they come back through the wardrobe, and earth time has hardly moved on at all. The difference between earth years and the timeless sphere of God's activity. Of course, C.S. Lewis didn't come up with that himself, as we quoted in the prayer earlier on. Peter tells us a day is like how many years? A thousand years, and a thousand years to God is like a day. So, since these words were written, it's been less than two days. That's why we believe that Christ's return is near. It's always near. the difference between earth years and the timeless sphere of the life of God. And by the way, the so-called delay that the scoffers scoff about are, are simply examples of His grace that more might come to faith in Jesus Christ. So don't question His return. If there's a sense of delay, it's because God wants you saved. And the delay is simply an act of grace. The scoffers will scoff, but that day will come. So stand firm in the meantime. Yes, things are bad, and miserably, they're going to get worse. That's why we read from 2 Timothy 3 uh, for a call to worship. I mean, I could read them those words again, but honestly, it was quite painful the first time. 
And here's the sad reality. Some even within the church are caving into the cultural demands of the day. And we have conferences and churches that promote, promote the cultural demands of the day. Thank God that some are standing firm. Not an inch should be our motto when it comes to these issues. And by the way, a little plug for Big Day In. Mums and dads, grannies and granddads, every person is involved in any kind of influence over any kind of child. We want to help you stand firm in your family and in your church. And I'd urge you to come to that and stand firm as we wait for Jesus to return. Control tongues. We already thought about this with the children, verse 9 to 11. Let's read them again. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of the patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered, and you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. See, the double-minded just um, let their tongues run riot, and they cause a great deal of grief. Lashing out, moaning, complaining, grumbling, being fault-finders instead of being encouragers, using the very vehicle that they should do to encourage, they turn it around and use it for the opposite thing. Now, remember, by the way, James is writing to Christians. The word brothers is mentioned here, just for emphasis, so that he says, oh, this isn't the oppressors of verses 1 to 6. This is the oppressed, verses 7 to 12, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12. Brothers, sisters, Christians, bickering and backbiting and grumbling. Do you know what that'll do? It will knock us off our mission. It saps us of our energy. And the judge standing at the door, close by for us all. Again, Peter, he, he, he speaks about this. He says, judgment begins with the house of God. And so we live in reverent fear and we live in obedience and faith. Jesus takes a dim view of grumbling. The whole, the whole Old Testament is just full of people grumbling Miriam and Aaron against Moses is just one example. And for us, you know, let's be honest, you know, I do it. You, you do it. We do it. When things are going our way, yeah, we're all smiles. But when things are not going our way, we tend to grumble. And it's evil. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you too will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Instead, of course, James takes a, um, a look at the, the prophets, verse 10. Generally, he speaks about them, verse 10. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Take one example, Jeremiah. You know, we, we don't hear Jeremiah preach a great deal, but his story is a story of um, a man who faithfully preached for a long, long, long time. And he was criticized, and he was beaten, and he was put in stocks, and he was thrown into a cistern, left to die. Why? Because he spoke against the false prophets. He spoke for God. And he never lost sight of what God wanted his people to hear. Notice there, verse 10. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name 
of the Lord. The ministry of Jesus, again, was continually criticized and attacked. And ministry for Jesus in his church will always be carried out in the face of great difficulty. There will be scoffers on the outside and there will be moaners on the inside. And it's tempting with all this going on to um, compromise or run away or look for another church where there be no grumblers. And then when you get there, you find, oops, there they are. James uses Job as another specific example in verse 11. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Oh, Job, what a story. Chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Job 19, 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. James says, don't grumble. Don't complain. Yeah, stand up. Stand up for gospel purity, for, for the sake of the unborn child, for the poor and the needy, for biblical morality. The list is endless. Stand up, but don't grumble. And notice there verse at the end of verse 11, or towards the end of verse 11, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. See, God had a purpose for Job, and he has a plan for me and for you, for us. And especially, he allows trials and troubles to come along in our lives, yeah, to help us walk with him and grow up in him so we don't need to complain or grumble. Focus on God's another, um, just a little extra there at the end of verse 11. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. As we wait for him to come, we, we've got to remember he's full of compassion and mercy. Now, often these are the very attributes that we begin to question when we go through hard times, when oppression comes our way. Satan tempted Adam and Eve about the goodness of God, and he follows the same kind of strategy today with the likes of you and me. So if you're struggling to keep going, remember his compassion and his mercy. One writer put it like this. If we focus on the situation around us that's happened to us, we'll get angry. If we focus on ourselves, we'll be filled with self-pity. When we focus on others, we'll begin to grumble. If we focus on the present, we'll miss out on what God has in store for us now and in the future. So this writer says, focus on his return and his compassion and his mercy. And then lastly, and very quickly, keep your word, verse 12. Be honest. In the light of his return, be honest. The emphasis is not here on blasphemy or lewd talk. It's not about promises or vows made in church, baptismal vows or church membership vows, or even in the court of law. That's not what he's dealing with here. Rather, it's about how we carry out ordinary conversations and what we say in private to God. We can make pledges to God that are simply unreal and are not kept. Sometimes they're big promises. Do you know how many times I've heard people say to me, oh, after a crisis, oh, things will be different now. 
I promise you. Very often, no change. James says, in the light of his return, be sincere. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. Mean what you say and say what you mean. Because, you see, when times are hard, it's easy to make rash promises. And when times are good, it's easy to make grand promises. He says, be honest. Do not make unfulfilled promises. There's, that was an amen from a cow in that field. <laughs> I'm glad I'm coming to the end because this could get noisy. Um, as we end, folks, and again, <laughs> these studies in James have been earth-shattering for me anyway. They've been really troubling. But we should not expect people to treat us well or justly. I think that's a big message from James. Probably they won't. It's a bonus if they do. <laughs> oh, yeah, if they do, enjoy it. But probably they won't. Because remember, the church has turned on Paul after 35 years of faithful uh, service. They turned on him. And what did Nero do? Well, he cut his head off. What did they do to Jesus? I mean, the whole nation, <clears throat> by and large, rejected the pure and perfect Jesus. And then they killed him. And it did the same to the apostles and, and to the prophets of old. And it's easy for us to say, oh God, if you were just like a genie in the lamp, or if faith could just be a magic wand. But it's not like that. Life is tough in a cruel, fallen, broken world. And ministry, therefore, is hard work. People will oppress us. Opposition is all around. And sometimes even we don't make it easy for ourselves. But, but, Jesus is returning. And as he steps onto the stage of history, earth years stop. And God's time begins. For us all, everything will stop. And he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth for us to enjoy our Narnia-like existence in his perfect, reformed world. In the meantime... Be patient, stand firm, control your tongues, focus on God, his mercy and his compassion, and be honest with your words. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we're thankful that you're not a, a genie in a, a lamp or You've given us a faith like a magic wand. You have given us the gospel. You've given us doctrine. And we know that life is so tough in this cruel, fallen world. We, we need your gospel encouragement. We pray that today you will fill our hearts and minds with it so that we will live with hope.
with the knowledge that you are with us, that you're going to return, and that you're going to work all things out for your glory and for our great good. Lord, write these words, write this message on our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.